Oh, here we go. There hey, we go. Jerry, how's it going, my friend? Good, how are you? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for joining us to give us another update on Making a Murderer and answer some further questions. Sure. And off, off the top, then, we've got something's happened with Zelna yesterday. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a false alarm. I think tomorrow is the actual reply uh, to the state's, um, state's response. Yesterday, she filed a, a document which essentially tried to clear up some citations to the record mistakes. Um, the, this is a very old case, goes back to 2005, long before there was uh, electronic filing and scanning of, of the documents into the record. And, and I've seen this in other cases as well. Apparently, there were some mix-ups in which documents were you know, assigned to which document numbers. The state pointed that out in their response, and then she filed a, response, a re request to amend her uh, motion that corrected those citations, and that's what she did yesterday, is actually file that amendment. I mean, how long can this go on for? You know, it can go on, unfortunately, a very long time as people are learning. Um, I had a case where a guy named Ralph Armstrong that I was working on for the Innocence Project that was fighting for 19 years, um, actually 15 years with me uh, before we finally got him out. So, um, you know, that's one of the problems with American justice is just it, it takes forever. And it's one of the reasons perhaps the people who originally put them in prison, they have moved on and it's a new breed of, of people uh, re-examining these cases. Well, if you're talking about the prosecution or, uh, you know, there are new new prosecutors on the case. Everybody else has retired. Although if he gets the case reversed and it's brought back for a new trial, uh, one or more of those prosecutors will probably be appointed to represent the state as a special prosecutor. They'll come out of retirement, so to speak. Wow. Which one would that be? You know, I would not be surprised to see um, Norm Gone come back into it. Um, I don't know about Tom Fallon. It's he certainly could. Um, Mark Williams is already doing being a special prosecutor in other counties and other cases, even though he's no longer actually appointed on this one because it's um, been taken over by the AGs. So what is Jeff. the diff What is the different status of the cases of Stephen versus Brendan right now? Brendan's case is actually dormant. Um, his, he doesn't have a motion pending in court. Uh, what he went all the way through his direct appeal through the state courts. He then filed the federal habeas corpus, went all the way through the federal courts. Um, in fact, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court that then chose not to hear his case. And so his direct appeal is completed. Um, he could still file what's called a collateral, um, we call a 97406 motion if there's newly discovered evidence or something of that nature that comes up. But right now that has not yet been filed. Um, right now he has, his case is, uh, has moved to the executive branch. Um, he, he requested the governor to grant clemency, uh, not necessarily a full pardon, but the governor is is authorized to shorten sentences and release people early. 
this particular governor has not exercised that right yet on any case. Um, and about a year ago, Dean Strang and I wrote a letter to him that became public where we were actually urging him to take this case as the very first one that he reviews and then to use that clemency power with many other cases because the way he has done pardons, he has issued pardons, but his rules for that are that you have to be out of prison and off supervision for a minimum of five years before you can apply. So that does nothing to reduce prison overcrowding and all the people that are languishing in prison now on, on you know, the kind of uber long sentences that were being handed out in the 90s, 80s, 90s, and 2010s. So, you know, I'm sure that his lawyer, Brendan's lawyers are still working to see if they can convince the governor to take another look at his case. He really should. There's people on social media every day that are asking the governor to do that. And, uh, but at, at this point, that's his, his option. There is no other case pending, no other motion pending in an actual court. What's the governor's name so we can get some more people on his case? Tony Evers, E-V-E-R-S. Right, well, well, people will find him on Twitter, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, how, how, it's an absolute tragedy. How does a kid cajoled into a confession where there's no DNA evidence whatsoever end up stuck in the system for this long? It's barbaric. You know, it is barbaric. And it, and frankly, one reason he's stuck this long is because of, of you, you see it in season two of Making a Murder. They, they, they look at what's called the EDPA, which is this... Um, this law that Congress passed in the 1990s during the height of the war on drugs and the war on crime. And, and basically it, it, it's called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, EDPA, A-E-D-P-A. And it really, it, it came about for two reasons. One, because of the Oklahoma City bombing um, and the, the Sean McVay, and then the, uh, uh, World Trade Center first bombing in 1993 and in part and probably in large part because of very clever um, death penalty lawyers, you know, good advocates who were managing to drag out um, the ultimate execution dates for people by filing motion after motion after motion in federal court, asking the federal courts to reexamine these state convictions. Um, and so Congress, particularly some in the South that had death penalty states, uh, really pushed Congress to change and make it more difficult for federal courts to review and reverse a state court. And that was really the impetus, along with the Oklahoma City bombing and some other terrorist type things that, that caused that law to be passed. Clinton signed it, um, and it has made it much, much more difficult, less than 1% of state court convictions get reversed now in federal court. And so even though Brendan came very, very close, he convinced um, four, essentially four federal judges that his confession was coerced and it should have been thrown out and he should get a new trial. Um, ultimately on an on banc review, he lost in a four to three very close decision. Oh, that's terrible. We've got an observation from one of the viewers here. We'll see if we can get you to comment on. Sean, not only was there no DNA evidence, Brendan had no representation during the interrogations. Is that legal, what they did? 
It is in Wisconsin. Uh, in fact, in some of the states have changed their laws now after making a murder came out and um, they actually, uh, Illinois, um, I don't know if Tennessee has done it yet. There was talk about it. A number of other cities, Seattle and some places that have barred any interrogation of children 15 or under. Um, it varies from, from one jurisdiction to the next, but, and then actually that wouldn't have helped Brendan because he was 16. But in those states, they're, they're recognizing that this, the read technique that was so well demonstrated in making a murder as being used against Brendan, it's really unfair for, for young people, people with vulnerable, even vulnerable adults, um, going up against these very skilled detectives. And so in those states that have changed the law, um, the police cannot even take a waiver. That is that no matter what the, the child or the, um, the vulnerable person says about waiving his rights, they cannot do it. They have to have a lawyer present. And of course, as we also see in making a murder, the, the quality of lawyers varies mm. quite a bit. Um, if Brendan had had Lynn Kaczynski, for instance, his first lawyer um, present during the interrogation, would he have cooperated and gone ahead and allowed them to do that? I don't know. He certainly did two interviews later, he allowed his, his client to be interviewed even without him being present. So, um, but it is permissible in America. And unless this is the rule, unless the, the suspect him or herself unambiguously demands a lawyer and exercises their right to remain silent. Are the laws or rules about parents being present? There are, uh, there are some, again, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There are some laws that, that require parents to be notified, um, but not necessarily that they'd be present. So in this case, for instance, in Brendan's case, the, uh, the cops claimed that they contacted uh, his mother and that um, they then went ahead and took him out of class and took him into, uh, you know, this private interrogation, but parents are not allowed to be present during the, in the interrogation room with the officers in almost any jurisdiction that I'm aware of. Okay. Looking more at the Avery's situation then and KZ, the main point of contention will be whether an evidentiary hearing should be held. In your opinion, Avery is being held to a much higher burden to even get a hearing than any other defendant you have seen in 40 years of practice. Why is that then? You know, some people have said, is it is has making a murderer actually made it harder for Stephen to get justice mm. because, you know, they've circled the wagons and they're afraid with all of the, the global um, uh, fo following of what happens now in the, the Wisconsin court that it's uh, and that may be true, for instance, in. I think in this particular judge's case, uh, she knows that if she grants a hearing, there's going to be, you know, the media is going to descend upon little Sheboygan County because that's where the case has been farmed out to. Um, and that she would be under the spotlight. And, you know, that's not going to be an easy situation for any judge to face. Um, that might be part of the, the, uh, uh, 
reluctant, shall we say, to grant a hearing in Stephen's case. Um, but certainly from the state standpoint, they don't want to have to relitigate this with actual witnesses. They want, uh, in fact, I, I think in their response, they really misled the court on a lot of what the, the facts are. Um, and they don't want to have those facts, the real true facts aired in public, in front of cameras, in front of the judge. Again, they would rather uh, stick with uh, the way that they can sort of spin the facts that have already been part of the record and, and spin them the way they want on paper rather than have actual live witnesses. Now, on the other hand, if making a murder hadn't come out and nobody had ever heard of Stephen Avery, he probably would just be rotting away in prison like thousands of other people. Um, so, you know, it cuts both ways. He, he's gotten the kind of attention that many people haven't, um, but that may have hurt him in other ways, like his ability to get an actual hearing to try and uh, demonstrate that the, the evidence is really a, a shaky house of cards. It's, it's about to fall. So when you talk about the narrative then, is that the narrative that was first established by Ken Kratz? Um, a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, the States kind of cuts it both ways. They don't want to, you know, for Brendan's case, of course, they wanted to use that narrative. Um, even though the evidence disproved it, there was no blood that would corroborate this kind of, um, you know, bloody stabbing in the slitting of the throats and all of, all of that, that, that they say Brendan said when actually he was kind of guessing and, and they were feeding him facts to try and make a story fit. Um, but in, of course, in, in Stephen's case, they didn't use at the trial, they didn't use Brendan's actual confession. Um, and so now in their response, uh, I had to kind of laugh at this, in, in their response opposing a hearing now, um, one other thing, again, it's this, this Denny motion is coming up again because um, Kathleen Zellner wants to point the finger at another named suspect, that is Bobby. And uh, in doing that, that implicates the Denny rule, which is, was there motive, opportunity, access, connection to the murder or to the crime? And what they want to try and argue, one of the things that, that Zellner has argued is, look, we, th there's this computer analysis of the Dassey household computer that she says uh, shows these searches that were during a time when only Bobby was home and uh, they involve essentially torture, murder, porn, um, young women are about the same age being um, mutilated and tortured. And uh, in their response, in the state's response, because that, that of course is the version that Ken Kratz gave to the world and his press conferences before trial, polluting the entire jury pool everywhere. Um, but in the state's most recent response, they argue, well, that's not enough because no one's said there wasn't any evidence in Stephen's trial that, that Teresa Halbach was mutilated or raped. Uh, in fact, they dismissed those charges. They charged them with it, but they could never prove it. So they dismissed it. Now, because they dismissed those charges, they're trying to double speak and argue, hey, this doesn't prove motive because there's there's no direct evidence that um, he was looking for people who were shot in the head or who were, you know, bodies burned and all that. 
Just to clarify the viewers then, who is Bobby in relation to Brendan, Dassey? His brother. Okay. All right. So and and he I, was, by the way, he was the uh, the star witness for the state. I mean, he is the he's the guy that that said that he saw Teresa drive up, saw her talking with Steve, um, and uh, that he then goes in to take a shower so he can go hunting, um, and that he watches her walking off towards Stephen's trailer residence front door. And then that's the last he ever saw her. So he's like the last person uh, that they offered, the last person to see her alive. Um, and to which I responded in my closing argument, yeah, because he was a killer. But then they objected and said, hey, you, you know, the judge precluded us from pointing the finger at him as a possible suspect. So, and that's true, the judge because we didn't have the, the sort of motive that we that Zellner now has, which is all of these computer searches that show his um, sort of obsession with the, this kind of murder, por torture, porn uh, involving young women. How convenient the suspect becomes the star witness. So what are the specious arguments the state has raised to oppose Kathleen Zellner's August motion? Well, you know, they, they basically, they, I, I wonder sometimes if they, if they think that the, the new judge or current judge that's hearing the motion is just not aware of the facts that were presented, but they're trotting out a lot of the same arguments that they that have already that, that they raised at trial and that we responded to even at trial. So for instance, they say um, that his, uh, what about Avery's DNA on the hood latch? You know, how did Bobby plant that? Um, and in fact, at trial, we demonstrated through their own witnesses that that might've been an innocent transfer by their own crime lab analyst who admitted he was inside the vehicle sampling um, and therefore in an, in an area where we know Stephen's blood was, um, however it was planted, um, and that he never changed gloves. Uh, he, he decided I need to find out what the, what the mileage is and the battery's been disconnected as it always is when it's towed in. And so he gets out of the car, goes to open the, and open the hood and had not changed gloves. So he could, we know now with DNA is so sensitive that the potential of, transferring it from one location to the next is very risky. And in fact, that's why the protocol is you change gloves. And this guy admitted he made a mistake. So that was one explanation offered at trial. Um, Kathleen Zeller has, has raised additional uh, alternative arguments. There's a, apparently a missing swab that was uh, taken from Stephen um, at one point that that might have been used to plant if the uh, police officers were the ones that planted it. So again, all of that was raised in the past and the state wants to trot this out as somehow uh, inconsistent with the argument that, that Bobby might be a reasonable third party suspect. Um, they also made an argument in their, in their motion, a response about how um, bones, fragments of bones from virtually every part of the human skeleton were found in Stephen's burn pit. And somehow that that is more incriminating for Stephen than anybody else. But we, we also proved at trial that 
There was also bones from all over the skeleton, human skeleton, found in this burn barrel that was, surprise, surprise, behind Bobby Dassey's house, about 150 yards away. And our argument then, and probably still, uh, the best argument is that she, her body was burned somewhere else, and one of these burn barrels was used to scoop up the cremains and dump onto Stephen Avery's burn pit in order to frame him. Um, but unbeknownst to this individual who was doing this, uh, some of the bones were stuck in the muck at the bottom of these, this burn barrel. They're left open in the elements. The rain comes in. There's, there's like muddy ash at the bottom. And, and so therefore it was jumbled up. In, a, in other words, there's a jumbled mix of various parts of a skeleton in the burn pit, just like there is a jumbled mix of various parts of the skeleton in the burn barrel. So the fact the argument that, oh, we found fragments from all over the the skeleton means it must have in the burn pit means he, that's where she must have been burned is 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 totally specious. Um, plus, they never found I, I can't remember if it was 60 percent or 40 percent of her entire cremains were ever found. The rest were never found to this day have never been found. Um, or if they were found, they were part of these quarry bones that unbeknownst to us and unbeknownst to his appellate lawyers were then given back to the Hallbach family uh, without court authority while the appeal was pending and then were disposed of. So at any rate, nowhere near all of her body was ever recovered in Stephen Avery's burn pit. Well, there was a bullet with Hallbach's DNA found in Bobby's garage. Yeah, now that was another another argument they made is, hey, you know, how does the fact that that Bobby could be a suspect explain this this uh, bullet with her DNA, DNA that was found in the in the Avery garage? But the problem with that was, we showed first of all that bullet was not ever even recovered by the cops until five months after the first week long thorough search of the garage. Somehow it magically appeared five months later when it wasn't there before. Um, and we showed at trial that the test of that bullet was contaminated by the crime lab analyst herself. And so it, normally the test should, be, should have been thrown out, never in her, what, 30 some year career at that time, had she ever uh, deviated from the protocol which says you throw the test out if there's contamination. Um, so they really had to twist things to even allow that evidence, um, that opinion to, to come in, that it was her DNA on the bullet. So it, it very well may have been, again, innocently planted um, or in, innocently planted on that bullet through contamination at the crime lab. Again, Kathleen Zellner has, a, has raised other arguments as well. Um, so it, that is by no means... Uh, proof of why you Bobby couldn't have been involved in this case. So how realistic is it then that these guys are going to get some mercy from the justice system or, as opposed to remaining buried alive? Well, you know, they have two different, um, two different public, I guess, perceptions. Uh, I, I think Brendan's, frankly, is more sympathetic with most people because most people that look at that case really think he had nothing to do with it. There was, 
And there was no, no evidence linking him to it, frankly, other than his confession, which was uh, highly suspect and really had the hallmark of the kind of techniques that produce false confessions. Um, so his is, I think, a more sympathetic um, picture than maybe Stevens. Some people, you know, it's maybe 50-50. Um, they think, well, there is at least circumstantial evidence uh, that was found that links Avery, like his blood in the RAV4. Now, was it planted? You know, that, that's another issue, of course. If it was planted, then, uh, then you have to ask yourself why, just like the key. Was the key that was found in his bedroom also planted? If they went to those kinds of lengths, why, you know, who's to say they wouldn't have planted the blood as well? Um, but um, at any rate, a lot of people, I think, agree that, that he should get a new trial. It wasn't fair. Um, you know, if, if the state thinks their case is so strong, let's just air it out now. Let's present everything that they hid from us in the first place, because it was, there's a lot of evidence that's come out in the last 10 years or so that was not disclosed to either us or his original appellate attorneys. Um, so, you know, but there is this, you know, it's very, very difficult. There's this doctrine of finality in America where they they really do everything they bend over backwards to keep from reversing convictions even in cases where there's evidence of corruption or incompetence crime lab scandals uh, there's a case right now in texas a guy named escobar wh whose uh, dna evidence was so screwed up in this crime lab that even the prosecutor stipulated that he should get a new trial but in Texas, uh, and then the judge agreed, the trial, trial level judge agreed, uh, but the state, uh, I'm sorry, that then has to be reviewed by a higher court in Texas. And the Texas high court reversed that, reinstated his death penalty conviction, even though the, the state and defense had agreed that he should get a new trial. Um, it's only because recently the, the United States Supreme Court reversed that decision and sent it back to Texas that this poor guy may have a chance. So, uh, you know, it is very, very hard to get convictions reversed in America. It's not impossible. There are cases that where it happens, and I'm still hopeful that it's going to happen for both of these guys. Um, but it is undoubtedly it has taken a long time. Do you know the present status of Ken Kratz, Kaczynski, and was it Brad Schimmel? Uh, Brad Schimmel is a judge in, uh, in Waukesha County near Milwaukee. Um, he was the attorney general and then he, he lost his election, uh, reelection to, to that particular position. And then the outgoing governor who also lost, um, appointed him as judge in Waukesha County. And that's where he's been ever since. Um, Kaczynski was also a judge, but a municipal judge, which is much less serious cases, really just traffic ticket kinds of things where you can find people, not send them to jail. He got into his own problem of um, involving a, a harassment of a clerk. He got charged. Um, he was ultimately acquitted of most of the counts, the felony counts. Um, but he was suspended. His ability to be a judge was suspended. So Kratz, meanwhile, uh, has kind of dropped off the uh, 
face of the earth. Last I heard was that he may be in Las Vegas. I'm not sure exactly doing what, but he is no longer practicing law in Wisconsin. Wow. Okay, so in general then, American cases, the appeal, it, it's just astronomical how long it takes, isn't it? You know, it is. Um, in, in some cases, you know, we do have procedures in uh, America where you can get um, your case brought back, you know, vehicles that defense attorneys can raise, motions that can be filed that you don't have in some cases uh, or in some countries. Um, Australia, for instance, if if there's evidence of innocence um, after your whole direct appeal is completed, the only way you can get back into court, I believe, is by persuading the attorney general to make a motion to do that. And um, uh, that really doesn't happen all that often either, of course. But um, uh, so uh, even though there are there are vehicles in America for for getting your case back into court, when it comes to actually getting reversed, it's very, very hard. What's with the prevalence of bogus junk science being used in court? You know, that's that's sort of a that's a my entire career has been a pet peeve of mine. That's why I, along with uh, Dean Strang and, and Keith Finley, we founded this nonprofit uh, based in Madison, Wisconsin, the Center for Integrity on Forensic Science, which focuses exclusively on trying to improve and reform the forensic justice or forensic evidence used in our courts. Um, unfortunately, it's not getting any any less used. There are certain types of evidence that are, that are um, being used less and less. So for instance, um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, microscopic hair comparison evidence was commonplace. You know, thousands of people were convicted of it. And the idea of it was if we find a, a piece of hair at the, the crime scene or on maybe a, a victim's body, um, and then there's a suspect arrested, we, you know, pluck a reference hair from his or her head, and you look it under a double field microscope, and these so-called experts were then giving their opinions about whether the hairs were consistent with each other. Um, and prosecutors routinely overstated that. And either the experts themselves would overstate what the, what the science could prove, or the prosecutors in their closing argument overstated it, talked about, you know, these hairs match, when in fact that's not what the science ever showed. Um, and in 2015, the FBI, to their credit, they, they went back and they looked at randomly, I think it was 268 cases where their own analysts who, you know, would be the best and the brightest, you know, trained in Langley, were testifying under this hair, a microscopic hair comparison uh, evidence. And they found that 95% of them either falsely or misleadingly overstated the, the strength of what the uh, evidence was and, and what their opinions um, could be. And as a result, the FBI no longer uses that science at all. Unfortunately, you know, something like 95% of criminal cases in America are done at the state level and hair comparison is still used all over the place. Bite mark evidence is another thing. Um, bite mark evidence is completely bogus. Um, study after study has shown that, and yet it's still being used in many state courts to convict people. Um, ballistics is another thing. Ballistics 
uh, is nowhere near as conclusive as you see on television. Um, and as you might think that you could somehow prove that a particular gun was fired, bullet was fired from a particular gun to the exclusion of every other gun in the world, which is not true. It has never been true. And it certainly is not true today where, where guns are mass produced, um, barrels are, are bored to perfection, machined. Um, and you know, every, everyone that comes off the assembly line is the same as the next. So, you know, I think part of why this evidence, it's not only that it comes in, it's also that it, it is so powerful to jurors. And that's probably partly the media's fault because it's been portrayed in television shows like NCIS or um, Bones or, um, you know, those kinds of um, television shows that, that you can, that of course, are trying to wrap up their whole plot within one hour. <laughs> And so that they, they get this evidence and they send it off to their lab and it's, it's conclusive evidence of, of guilt. And that is, that's never been the case. And in fact, DNA, the one gold standard, um, is even less probative now than it used to be. It's ironic because the better the science has gotten, the less valuable the evidence has proven to be in a particular case of proving guilt because it used to be that you would need a lot of DNA in order to, you know, get a profile that could match somebody. Um, lots of blood, lots of semen. And if you found that, then it was pretty damning evidence, uh, inculpatory evidence of guilt. You know, how's this guy's blood or how's this guy's semen there? Um, but now it's gotten, the tests are so sensitive that just a few cells, you can pick up a full DNA profile that uh, touch DNA, innocent transfer DNA, where I shake your hand, um, you go off and rob a bank and leave a gun, and my DNA is on that gun because I shook your hand. Um, and, and so the, the presence of DNA has actually become less, that's why I say, less conclusive of guilt than it used to be. Uh, so, you know, this is a problem. Uh, it's a problem that I'm, I think we, we need to educate jurors on a case-by-case -case basis. And what we're trying to do at SIFS, SIFSjustice.org, you can see the link uh, down below, um, is to try and weed out that evidence that's, that's just so bogus that jurors should never even hear it. And, and then hopefully and then it's up to the attorneys to try and persuade the court and the jury as to, you know, with evidence that's not reliable, explain why. What about the read technique? Has that been canned? You know, it has been uh, severely weakened uh, because the number two in America, the number two police training outfit um, has abandoned it. They refuse to train officers in that technique anymore because they have uh, concluded and studies have shown that it, yeah, it does get guilty people to confess, but it has a high incidence at least too high, too risky high incidence of false confessions. Confessions that we know um, through DNA exonerations, the, the suspect was falsely confessing. Um, and then later DNA proved that. So it's gotten weakened. It's still kicking around there though. And it's, um, it's kind of on a case by case basis where lawyers have to learn you know, how the technique is done, where its weaknesses are, 
and, and present that to a court. And then ultimately, if the court allows it, then to the jury to explain to them why it's not reliable. Looks like we've just got a couple of viewer questions before we finish. Ray J's asked, is Wisconsin unique in this type of controversial case or has this and Rittenhouse case highlighted Wisconsin? Wisconsin justice <laughs> or lack of it. You know, um, Wisconsin has had its share of, of strange cases, let's face it. You know, the, the Jeffrey Dahmer, um, Rittenhouse, uh, Avery Dassey cases, even before that, the, the Alfred Hitchcock movie Psycho was based on an actual case in Wisconsin. Um, and there are many more, but it's, it's also, I mean, we, we are a very big country, you know, approaching 350 million people in America now. And um, you can find these kinds of cases everywhere. You find some outrageous, unbelievable ones. There's one going on now in, in South Carolina, involving um, uh, a, a lawyer, um, a lawyer whose father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were elected over and over and over as uh, district attorneys in, in a small county in South Carolina. Well, now he's being charged with the murder of his wife and son and with trying to hire somebody to kill himself so that his surviving son could get the life insurance policy. Um, just, you know, a bizarre story that was is a Hollywood script. And um, so, you know, you, you see these kinds of cases in lots of different places. The UK's had some strange ones as well. Um, but we are, you know, obviously a very big country and we've got a lot of guns and there's lots of different ways that uh, Americans have figured out that they can uh, kill people, unfortunately. Next question. Was D.A. Binger involved in the Avery case? I, I think he means, uh, that's a misspelling, I think he means the DA that was in the Rittenhouse case, uh, and no, he was not involved in Avery's case, or Dassey's. All right, All right Jerry, do you want to tell the viewers then, you know, about, a bit about your book and, and where they can find it? Yeah, my book's called Illusion of Justice Inside of Making a Murder in America's Broken System. You can find it on Amazon, Amazon UK, um, uh, lots of different Amazons all over the world, but also for, directly from the publisher, HarperCollins. Um, you can find it in libraries all over the place, something like a, a thousand different libraries from Perth to Stockholm. Um, so it, it talks not just about the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey cases, but also about similar it, types of issues that I've seen throughout my career, cases I've worked on, and then it's got some suggestions on, on what the individual can do to try and help improve the system of justice in their own community. Um, since you've been saying that, I've just noticed a couple more questions have come in. Okay. Um, was a search warrant issued for Bobby's property? Uh, no, there was, um, interestingly, the, uh, one of the things that I meant to mention earlier in the, in the state's response to Zellner's latest motion was that this bullet, for instance, that this, this bullet that was found in the garage with supposedly with um, Teresa's DNA on it came from the bullet, the gun that was found in Stephen's bedroom, which uh, oddly enough had a, was hanging above his bed and it had a little piece of masking tape that said Steve's, 
you know, as, as if so we want to make sure that you realize this was his gun when in fact it wasn't his gun. It was the, the owner's gun, the owner of the, the um, trailer that he was renting. Um, but anyway, they, they tried to argue uh, in this motion and a trial that this bullet had to have come from that gun and no other gun, when in fact that isn't true. It, that, that gun was a 22 Glenfield Marlin rifle. It is the most common gun made in the world, millions of them. And the very same make and model was found in Bobby Dassey's house, the very same one. And it was never tested. It was never really compared you know, to see whether that might have been the source of that bullet. So um, there was also uh, a deer that supposedly was roadkill that was hanging in the garage that um, they never tested the, the, the blood in the garage. Uh, where Bobby Dassey lived, which was right next door to Stevens, uh, to see whether maybe Teresa's DNA might have been found in that garage. So, you know, they did they did see some things from that residence, but they did not do the kind of thorough search that they did in Stephen Avery's. Last question then is whether the Innocence Project is involved with these guys. The Innocence Project is not involved uh, with either one of them. There was a conflict. Um, they were involved, the Innocence Project in Wisconsin was involved in Stevens' first case where he was exonerated, the 1985 one. Um, but they have not been involved uh, in directly in either one of their cases since. They could not be involved uh, in Brendan's case because of conflicts of interest. Uh, but instead, the, the Northwestern uh, Center on um, wrongful conviction involving youth at that time um, took over Brendan's case, two very good lawyers, um, Laura Nyrider and, and Steve Drizzen uh, represented Brendan, but the quote unquote innocence projects have not been directly involved. All right, Jerry, it's always a great pleasure. We salute the fantastic work you were doing and you take care, my friend. Thanks for spending time with us. All right, thanks. Good seeing you Cheers. again. Cheers. Bye-bye.